Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Welcome to Exploring Missions, connecting mission needs with those equipped by God to meet those needs across the world or across town. And now the host of Exploring Missions, Bert Harper on AFR Talk. Galatians 4.4 talks about Jesus coming in the fullness of time. Now we know that he came when God wanted him to and came not unexpected for God, but it was a little bit unexpected for others. Last week, we had the privilege of looking at the time before Jesus made his entrance into the world in Bethlehem as a babe, and, you know, it was really interesting, and we appreciate that so much, so we're going to review that a little bit. It was 400 years, and uh, we're going to give you a little highlight, and then we're going to talk about the world that Jesus came into missionally, and uh, we're excited about that, and we hope that you will listen. My co-host, as usual, is Nathan Harper, and Nathan is leading us through this study, and it's a two-part study, and uh, we hope that this part will really bless your life. So, Nathan, 400 years, they call it the silent years or the interbiblical period. A lot of things developed during that period of time. We talked about that last week, but it was in the fullness of time. That's right, the time between the Old and the New Testaments, and there's a lot going on. Uh, There were cultural developments we talked about. There were messianic expectations that the Jewish people may or may not have had uh, about about the coming Messiah, who is Jesus. Basically, uh, Jesus revealed himself as the Messiah, not only for Israel, but for all peoples, all, all tribes, all languages, all nations. And that was the essential part that a lot of people at that time did not understand, did not want to understand, did not get. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about more, more today is Jesus— among the Gentiles, Jesus and his ministry among Gentiles. Aren't we glad of that? We are. I'm a Gentile. (laughs) I am as well. Uh, I've been grafted in. That's right. You know, I I wasn't born into it. I was grafted in. And and that was God's plan from the very beginning. Yeah. And then God sending Jesus, he was sending a Messiah for all peoples. So in today's world, we've got the church, which is basically a lot more Gentile than Jewish. Uh, We I need we need need to look for all nations, but today there's a lot of desire to reach Jewish people. Yeah, they've they've become basically in a lot of most of, they're dispersed in almost every nation, and in almost every place they're basically an unreached people group. Okay, that's right. Um, now speaking of Jewish people, there were Jewish responses in this period of time of 400 years between Old and New Testaments, where you saw Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Romans oppressing ruling over them as Gentile overlords, and there were four basic Jewish responses. One, you had a group of people, Jewish people, called the Zealots, okay? Their focus was on taking control, reclaiming the land, okay, the holy land that God had promised them. Um, And so they kind of dealt with things through anger and confrontation. What's amazing, one of Jesus' apostles was a zealot. One of his disciples, yeah, possibly even two. Yeah, that's true. Uh, Two of Jesus' Uh, Twelve disciples might have been from this group. Uh, Simon the Zealot. For sure. Yeah, and then other people uh, uh, assume that Judas Iscariot. Uh, now, Iscariot, 
the way the reason he had that name was because of the dagger that he probably carried. And zealots would carry this type of da- dagger called uh, a scary, a scary. I don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, now, wow. there's recently been a book uh, written in the last few years claiming that Jesus might have been a zealot himself. Um, this honestly, this is just postmodern deconstructionism. Okay, right. it and it's is. a rewriting of scripture. There's really no evidence whatsoever. None. Uh, even not if in, you look at it objectively, not in the biblical. No, not at all. So uh, there were the zealots. Then you had another group who you didn't hear much of in the in the New Testament, but there were the Essenes. Right. Okay, Essenes were their focus was on some sort of mystical priesthood. Okay. And they they confronted society through non-confrontation, basically. They withdrew and they isolated themselves. Now, again, there's been a lot of postmodern speculation that John the Baptist was possibly in a scene. Now, there is a little bit more evidence saying that could have been the case. Well, there's difference in being influenced and going completely. And so that's what I believe was John had influence from Essenes. Uh, but he he did not totally withdraw. Uh, he was pretty confrontational as well. <laughs> so um, anyway, a lot of these new thinkings that come along, you got to really just be careful and take it right back to Scripture. You know, you better biblical model. That's right. So you had zealots, Essenes, then you had Sadducees. Now, what were the Sadducees most concerned with? They were concerned with the temple. Yeah. And the Sadducees, they didn't believe anything of the prophets. They didn't even take the poetry. They just had the five books, and they they ran the temple. Yeah, they were they were mostly involved around Jerusalem. That's they, right. They were very hierarchical in their approach to yeah. everything. And and another way to look at it, their approach was you could call it aristocratic capitulation to Rome. That's it. Um, you mentioned in the last uh, last week's segment about the movie Ben Hur. Yes. Um, now, have you seen the newest? I have. version. Yeah, and if it's you, good too. It is. If you but watch Charlton the, Heston, it's just hard <laughs> to beat Nathan. <laughs> and I can't remember the old one as much, but I know the new version of Ben Hur. If you if you pay attention to Ben Hur's um, um, his relationship to the Roman rulers in Jerusalem, you see what this. An attitude of Sadducees. Yes. It was aristocratic. It was a capitulation to Rome. Um, and that's kind of – that's the Sadducee party. And then you They had, were sad, you see. <laughs> that's how you – you know. Exactly. And they were sad. Yeah, they didn't they believe. See, they they didn't, didn't believe in resurrection. They did that not believe in resurrection. That would. Yeah. And then you had Pharisees. We talked about them last week. Their focus was the law. But you could say they were legally trying to religious – uh, religiously keep the law, in in that do, in doing that they were somewhat subverting Roman rule. I believe they started out right, yeah, and I were diverted. That's I right. really believe that. Uh, I'm not sure about the Sadducees even starting correctly. To be be honest with you, yeah, the Pharisees now, they had a lot of things that would divert them. Mainly the law itself. Now listen to this: they had such an emphasis on the law. They had 613 written laws of Moses that they tried to uphold, plus they added on to that over 5,000 oral tradition laws. Now, that would kind of get anybody just, just, you know, diverted from whatever their mission was, right? They, they did. You know, they, they, the letter, go back to what the Bible says, the letter of the law kills, the spirit gives life. They killed it because yeah. they went through the letter. They had to explain what work was. They had to explain everything. 
And so the Pharisees also, but they did believe in the prophets and they did believe in resurrection and they believed in angels. Yeah. Where the Sadducees, there there was a complete, you had what people, some call liberalism yeah. and, and uh, conservatism yeah. and uh, the Pharisees conservative down the line. Yeah. And sometimes conservatism, even let, let's take it, will keep you from doing what you need to do. Because we're, we're miss going, it. Yeah, we'll miss it. We got to watch that. We got to have theologically sound. Yes, but living it out, and definitely missing um, the mission that Jesus had. That's exactly they, right. They missed out on that. They did. Now, all of these groups emphasized racial and religious purity. Okay, whether by blood or by keeping the law, this Jewish ethnocentrism underlies each confrontation they would have with Jesus. You see, when Jesus would confront Pharisees, Jesus would confront Sadducees, what he was really confronting was their heart of their their people first. So it's you know? really pride and superiority. Exactly. If you get yeah. right down to it, the first sin was pride. I'll lift up Satan, uh, Lucifer. I'll have my throne as high as God's or higher. And pride is one of those root root sins, man, and the Pharisees had it. So before we jump right into Jesus among the Gentiles, let's look at a summary between this Old and New Testament. There were 400 years of suffering at the hands of their Gentile oppressors, and there was silence from their God, which left Israel defensive, desperate, and discontent. That's a big statement, Nathan. Now God, even though you would say he was silent, God was preparing the way actively, even through cruel pagan masters, for the Messiah and his global redemptive message. He was setting the stage. So he was there all the time. He was. Okay. (laughs) And then there was Jewish ethnocentrism, which was the underlying attitude. Gentiles were seen as the enemies. There was nationalistic expectations of the Messiah. Their Messiah. That's right. That they wanted. Let me just pause here for a moment. I hear people do this. The God that I know would not do that. That's the problem. The God that you know. It's the God of the Bible. And uh, AFA and AFR, especially American Family Studios, are trying to produce some material that the biblical God of holiness and love, balanced, comes forth. A lot of times in our days, there's those that take the love of God so much that he's a mush God, and then those that take it so extreme that he's a harsh, mean God, and neither one of those are true. He is a loving, caring, holy God. You need to know him. Now, how could we know God fully and completely? Only Only through through Jesus. Jesus. That's right, knowing Jesus. We would see the Father. Have you not understood that when you see me, you've seen the Father? Amen. So I want to read a passage in Haggai, which is not a book you usually look at, especially when you're dealing with missions. They're saying, you mean there's a book in the Bible called Haggai? (laughs) Yes, there is. Haggai chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Let me just kind of read a summary of that. This is uh, God's words. He says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place will I give peace. Now, that's a promise of God. What, is, what do you think is the main frame of reference? What is God talking about here? This, I, I can't get over the desire of all nations. 
regardless of Gentile, Jew, Eastern, Western, continent, there's, what is that? Who said there's a divine vacuum in every, Pascal, Pascal, in every man that only God could fill, Nathan? So this has to be a messianic promise about Jesus. Now, specifically, the context is speaking of the temple. Now, you can refer to it as the physical temple that would be rebuilt, um, or you could see it as Jesus as the temple, ultimately. Yeah, doing Exploring the Word. Alex McFarlane and I, we do Exploring the Word on Monday through Friday, 3 o'clock Central Time every day, where we do a Bible study and answer questions. We talk about the dual purposes of, of Old Testament scriptures, that it is referring to the temple, but it also is in reference to Jesus. Several, right. several scriptures are like that. I believe this is That's one right. of them. Because what makes the temple the temple is the presence of God. Exactly. Well, where's the presence of God located? In, in Jesus. Jesus. You know? So let's look at Jesus then, and we don't have to read all these passages, but we might refer to them. Um, we see even in the genealogy of Jesus, we see his concern, God's concern for Gentiles and all nations. Matthew 1, verses 1 through 16, you see this genealogy. Look who's included in the genealogy. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba. Now, all those are, are women, which is unusual uh, to put in, in a genealogy. Well, let me add to that. Matthew was written basically to the Jewish people. Like That's right. Luke had more Gentiles in mind. So in this Jewish presentation of the gospel of Matthew, you see the Gentiles involved and what the desire of all nations. That's right. So you have, uh, you have women mentioned. Um, you have Tamar, who is uh, Genesis 38. We see she was Canaanite. Um, Rahab, we see in Joshua. And Ruth, in the book of Ruth, Ruth was a Moabitess. Uh, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, okay, which up in Turkey was where the Hittites were from. Now, this is huge for blood, kinship, group-oriented culture, like the Jews, okay? Um, and what, G- what God was saying through Jesus is a Messiah is for all peoples, not just for the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you mentioned Luke's genealogy. Luke's genealogies show that Jesus is related to Adam or if you're related to Adam, you're related to everybody, right? That's right. All peoples. That's why uh, we say on Exploring the Words that there's just one human race. That's right. The Adamic race, we're from, we're from Adam. So the Jewish Messiah has Gentile blood. Think about that. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> Amen. Okay. Now, let's look at another passage in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And I actually want to read some of this. Um, and um, it's, a, it's the story of... The wise men or the magi coming to visit, you know, the the child or the baby Jesus. Uh, so Matthew chapter two, we won't read all this, but uh, verses one through twelve kind of talks about how these uh, these men, these magi, came from the east. Okay, now the magi were some of the first worshippers of Christ, and I believe they were Gentiles. Now there's some that would speculate they were actually Jews that were part of the dispersion. But uh, I, I don't believe there's really evidence toward that. I, I agree with you. It's, uh, they, I believe they were Gentile as well. And there were probably some sort of um, scholarly, wealthy astrologers uh, from the East, probably Iraq, Iran area, uh, from Persian Empire. Um, and so 
they would come from the east and um, they would come into Jerusalem. Okay. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, um, they would arrive unexpectedly in Jerusalem. Now, we tend to think of three wise men, right? But what do you think? How many do you think there might have been? I got a feeling there were more than that. Yeah, some people even speculate up to 50 or yeah, so. The only reason three is the three gifts. Right. So. But three is a good number. <laughs> so you have these at least three or probably more uh, wise men coming into Jerusalem. They're asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now look at the next verse. It's really interesting. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed. Now we can understand why King Herod was disturbed. One, he was not truly a Jewish person. He would claim to be, but no, everybody knew he wasn't. Um, and you know, he he ruled just by his his uh, heavy handedness, even killing his own family members right. to protect his kingship. So he was threatened by this announcement of these foreigners coming in looking to worship the King of the Jews. You know. Um, but listen to this next phrase. Herod was disturbed, but all Jerusalem with him. What is that about? Why Why is Jerusalem? And all Jerusalem might mean specifically the religious leaders in Jerusalem, because that's who he would assemble. The chief priests, the scribes of the people. Why would, they, why would these people be um, disturbed by this announcement that there was a born in, you know, nearby, a king of the Jews? Isn't well, that what they're looking for? That. <laughs> they say in reality is is a reality is a hard master sometimes nathan yeah. but I, I i do believe someone has said when herod was disturbed everybody was disturbed because you never knew whose head was going to roll True. and there's a lot of truth to that but i i, I believe it was upsetting wrong they had accepted rome a lot of them had accepted roman um overlordship right and I was wondering what's going to happen. How the the bottom line is how's this going to affect me? Yeah, that's that's, that's the bottom right. line. That's right. And so um, we even see their own nationalism becoming really about themselves, a selfishness. Exactly. Always. <laughs> I hate to say that. Now they would go on to Bethlehem because that's where the the star was kind of leading them to, and they would come and find Jesus, and they would lay their treasures. Uh, in front of Jesus. Now, we mentioned that um, that passage in Haggai about Jesus being the desire of all nations. Some translations actually don't say desire of nations. They actually say treasures yes. from all nations will be brought. Yeah. Uh, in other words, the temple will, when the temple is rebuilt, all these treasures from all the nations will be coming into the so temple. So if, if Haggai has double or dual thought, Jesus is the temple. So the treasures that are being brought from the wise men, there you fulfilling go. Hey guys, prophetic exactly. word. So we see gold, we see frankincense, we see myrrh. Now I want to do a little bit of digging here just because I think it's interesting. Bethlehem, what does the word Bethlehem mean? House of bread. House of bread. All right, so kind of keep that in mind. These wise men bring gold, frankincense, myrrh into uh, the presence of Jesus, who we know is, is the temple. Okay, now gold is gold in the temple. Oh, overlaid, the table, yeah. uh, so many things. Yeah. So think about the table of showbread. Okay. Yeah. It's overlaid with gold. What's on the on the table? The bread. The bread. Now, believe it or not, and I don't know how this would taste. It might not taste good. I don't know. Um, so one of the ingredients into that went into the making of the showbread 
was frankincense. Okay. I didn't know this until I studied on it. Now, not only was frankincense used in the temple, gold, of course, was used in the temple. Myrrh, one of the other gifts of the, of the Magi, that was also used in the temple in, the, in one of the ingredients of the anointing oil that, the, that was used. Okay. So whatever way you look at it, Jesus is the temple. He's the bread. He's the one who, whose nations will come and lay their treasures. worship offerings, their treasures before him. He is the desire of all nations. Amen. He is. Even as a baby, yeah. even as a child. And we're, we're saying to you, if you're missing out on knowing Jesus Christ as the treasure in earthen vessels that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 4, you're missing out on the greatest adventure uh, that you could ever have. Now, just to run through this real quickly, um, you know, in, even in Jesus' birth, his genealogy, um, as the wise men would come, Later in Luke chapter 2, the temple dedication. Um, in Matthew chapter 2, later, the flight to Egypt. Um, all those in, have something to do with, with the nations, with Gentiles. Yeah. Egypt, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you know, he goes there. But then Jesus' ministry would begin with his baptism. Um, and you see references to the nations among in, in, the, in those texts. Uh, his temptation in Matthew 4. And then Jesus would announce his ministry in Luke chapter 4, and I want to read this just quick, quickly. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. Jesus is announcing, this is basically his mission statement, okay? And he's reading possibly from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, uh, in a synagogue here in Nazareth, okay, his hometown. In Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 19, it says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. As usual, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And unrolling the scroll, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He then rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. He began to say to them, Today as you listen, this scripture has been fulfilled. Now, if you look back at that passage in Isaiah, um, Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, Jesus actually, when he read from it, he, he left off a part of verse 2, which talks about God's judgment. The vengeance. The vengeance of, of the Lord, Lord. Basically being put on all the nations. Why do you think he left that off? You tell me. <laughs> my mind, this is where my mind goes. Jesus knew he was going to take that judgment. Jesus knew he was going to face the wrath of God for all the nations, for Israel, for all people. He was going to be the one to take that, and the judgment would no longer go upon uh, everyone else. It would, become, it would go upon he, him. He took it on himself. Nathan, that's, that's powerful. Now, you read the rest of that part of Luke 4, and everything's good for a while. They're like amazed at his authority and how he teaches. But then he goes on because he's pressing the issue. Here's what he talks about. He says, No prophet is accepted as hometown. I say to you, there were certainly many widows in Israel in Elijah's days when the sky was shut up for three years and six months while a great famine came over all the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them 
but to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And in the prophet Elisha's time, there were many in Israel who had serious skin diseases, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman the Syrian. Who does Jesus bring up to make a point? Two Gentiles, the Syrian Naaman and a Syrophoenician woman or Sidonese woman uh, in Zarephath. Okay, the widow. Now what happened? Listen to this. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was enraged. (laughs) So immediately they were amazed, and then they became enraged. And over only this issue of Jesus making the issue that God was for for the Gentiles, not just for the Jews. And so they, they tried to stone him. They tried to kill him, throw him over the cliff. But he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. Now, that kind of gets to the point of what we were saying earlier. is The confrontation that Jesus would have with all these groups was over this issue of Gentiles. See, Jesus taught about Gentiles, and Jesus not only taught about it, he interacted with them. Now, we probably don't have time to go through all these. Um, but there was you know, a few things. One thing I want to else bring up. Uh, before we close, is in uh, Mark chapter 11. Um, he he, he uh, gets into the scrape here in the synagogue. In John 2, it records about uh, some trouble he had at the temple. And then there's more ch- temple trouble in, in the book of Mark chapter 11. That's a good thought, temple trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, what, what's going on here in, in Mark 11? He's, he's, he's visiting the temple with his, with his disciples, okay? And a, an interesting passage to kind of notice is in chapter 11, verse 11, says, He went into Jerusalem and into the temple complex. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he went out and kind of scoped things out, what's going on in the temple. What did, what did he notice when he was looking around? The money changers? Is yeah, that the one right. thing? The money changers, the people selling they were in the court of Gentiles is where this was. What was happening is preventing the Gentiles from coming in and worshiping. They were, had their money-making machine where the Gentiles were supposed to be, and that's when he overturned so he, could, he was making room. That's right. Now, he went out, and on the way back to Bethany, he saw a fig tree that looked pretty, had light, nice leaves, but what was not on it? No fruit. No fruit. What did he do? He cursed it. He cursed it. The next day, he came to the temple and overturned the money-changers' tables. What Jesus was saying, I believe, was that your focus on the temple is misplaced. You're keeping Gentiles, all the nations, from coming and praying and being, this being a house of prayer that I've created. Uh, in other words, this time is, is closing. This, this temple time is going to be over. It's time to come to me. It's time to look to me. That's where the fruit will be, not in this temple, not in this religious uh, you know, temple worship. But in Jesus is where fruit will be born. And it's fruit that's gathered from all the nations. Nathan, uh, this is radical that Jesus came for all peoples, all the nations, every tribe. The Jews took it like it was for them. It was their responsibility to share it. Today, the church's responsibility is to share it as well, isn't it? That's right. We've got to continue that. That's God's call upon our life. Again, Nathan, thanks for this study, and we appreciate so much Jesus' care for, for those of us who are Gentiles and Jews, all the nations, all the tribes. Thank you again for listening to Exploring Missions here on the American Family Radio. We would love you to be on mission for God. 
across the street, or around the world, but obey Him in carrying out His great commission.